It would be really helpful to have your Bibles open, so we continue in our Corinthian series. In fact, it is week 17 of 18, so this is penultimate week. So if you've got your Bibles open, chapter 15, we're picking up in the second half from verse 35, so Bibles or Bible app ready, and there's an outline on the back of the news as well if you'd like to follow along with that. But as we come to God's Word, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious Father, how we thank you so much that we can not just know about you, but know you. We thank you so much for revealing yourself through your Son and in your Word. So please now, as we come to your Word, be at work in the power of your Spirit, that we would have a phenomenal hunger for what you desire of our lives, that we would have a hunger for the truth of the Gospel, and that you would enable us to stand firm and serve you fully with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, just this week, around the low family household dinner table, our kids decided to ask the question, not where do babies come from, but the question was, how are babies born? Now, I have to confess that I managed to be absent for this conversation, and uh, no doubt Patrice handled it with incredible tact and insight, and I know there's a few people here in particular who'd have some advice on how to handle this question, but it is obviously a tricky one for a whole bunch of reasons, not least, how do we take something that is so mysterious and unknown to our children and communicate it in an appropriate way that they're going to understand? That's kind of like where we're up to now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul has been unpacking, of course, the glorious news about the resurrection of the dead, that because Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead and appeared, remember the fourfold gospel summary that we looked at last week, that not only can we have every confidence that the enemy of death has been defeated, that God and Christ has taken a wrecking ball to death, but that our future is directly connected to Jesus' resurrection. Our resurrection is hitched to his. And as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, all who die in Christ will be raised forever. So we are born. We are born again in Christ. We put our trust in him. We die, but we will rise again. Paul said that this changes everything about how we live today. Not only do we have a future, but our bodies really matter to God. The world really matters to God. So you think, okay, Paul, great, we've got it. We're going to be raised from the dead. This is super news, but I have a few questions. So just a bit like the kids asking, how are babies born? feels very natural to ask, well, Paul, how is this going to happen? What will it be like? And actually, Paul anticipates those very questions, as we heard, as he continues in verse 35, but someone will ask, that might be us, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How is this going to happen? What type of body will we have? That's really the rest of the chapter, chapter 15, that's what it really is all about. It's the the what, the how, and the when of our resurrection bodies. So three points about our resurrection bodies today. So the what? Imperishable, just like Jesus. 
the how inherited from Jesus and the when immediately when the Lord Jesus returns. So first, what will the resurrection body be like? Imperishable, just like Jesus. So verse 36. How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Now, when you hear this read out loud or when you read it yourself, you might think, yikes, I'm even more confused than I was before. So let's just break down simply what Paul is saying. So remember the context. Paul is addressing some of the Corinthian church who thought that because Jesus had risen and because they had received the gift of the Spirit, they mistakenly thought, well, we have arrived at the final destination, that the new era, it has come in full. But Paul's response, very subtle, don't be fools. You're not there yet. He warns them, he wants them to understand that when it comes to the resurrection body, there is a, both a continuity and a discontinuity with their current bodies. So that's what the image of the seed is all about, that you plant a seed with the expectation, I'd imagine, you plant a seed with the expectation of becoming something else. The seed dies in a way and does not just come back to life, but it gives way to something new. I think every single primary schooler at some stage has done that experiment with a sprout seed. You, you plant it, you add some water, not with the expectation that it's going to stay the same. I hope that's not the expectation. But that before your eyes, the seed will crack open, it'll sprout, a sprout, it's transformed. Paul's saying that's what it's like in a way for us. Our bodies are like a seed which will die, but when we are raised, we will be transformed. We will both be remade, yet remain the same person. Is there still a connection with our former self? Absolutely, just like the, the wheat and the seed. But this is not just about a dead body being reanimated back to life, not just from the physical or to the spiritual, but an extraordinary transformation from death to life everlasting. Note that's what Paul is talking about when he makes the point in verse 39 that not all flesh is the same. He says there are humans, animals, there are birds, there are fish. Now, he's not saying that when we have our resurrected body, we're going to change in species or something like that, that all of a sudden you're going to look like a fish. But that just as, he's using creation as a pointer, that just as you can observe different types of body in the world right now, and they are all physical, the heavenly body to be received, well, it's also physical as well. Verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. If you think the splendor of creation is grand right now, we're in the peak of it right now in Toowoomba, the carnival of flowers, everything looks spectacular, but if you think that is the peak, just wait for that yet to come. For just as the moon owes its splendor to reflecting the sun, 
so our earthly bodies are just a frail glimpse of the splendor yet to come. For that which is perishable, that's us right now, well, it will be raised imperishable. Do you note those contrasts from verse 42 onwards, from perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power, from natural to spiritual. Now, let's be crystal clear about that last one, from natural to spiritual, because it kind of sounds like something it's not. It kind of doesn't translate well from the original language to English. Paul is not saying that we go from physical to disembodied spiritual. But the word natural here, so natural body, means something like a body belonging to this age of frailty and death, transformed to a spiritual body, meaning belonging to the new age of God's kingdom. So we have no longer have bodies that are bogged down and saddled by our human frailties. Our bodies really do need some work. But in Christ, we will be raised with imperishable bodies that will last. Redemption of our bodies, not redemption from our bodies. Redemption of the world, not redemption from our world. It often puzzles me that people I know who have all sorts of beliefs about what happens after we die, they are often very ready and readily receive the possibility of some sort of phys non-physical future and eternity, but will totally reject the idea of physical eternity. It seems simpler to them to accept some sort of disembodied mystical future, as if one is harder than the other. But that's not what the Bible asserts. That's not what Jesus' resurrection, the first fruit, points to. People saw him with their eyes, heard him with their ears, were invited to touch him with their hands, witnessed him taste the food he ate. That's what it will be like for us. Transformation from the perishable to the imperishable is what we're promised, with a future not dictated by the limit of our imaginations, but by the irresistible power of God. Whenever I hear the song Blinding, you might know it, uh, the song Blinding by Florence and the Sheen, I'm always struck by one line that really stands out, one set of lyrics, which is no more dreaming of the dead as if death itself was undone. It's striking in its honesty because it seems to acknowledge the most significant tension of all, that we have this deep longing as humans for immortality. Yet simultaneously, we recognise our utter powerlessness to fulfil such a longing on our own. No more dreaming of the dead as if death itself was undone. It kind of acknowledges defeat and it relegates it to the pile of impossibility and says we've got to give up that longing because death is one. Yet the radical claim of Christianity is that despite our powerlessness, death is defeated because it's from Jesus that our future bodies are inherited. It's kind of amazing, I think, that the way that Paul answers the question of how will this happen is not by breaking down the physical mechanics of the resurrection of the dead, which I'm kind of help, uh, thankful that's not what he does, but he answers it by who will do it. So the answer to how will the dead be raised is God. How? God. Paul said earlier, that God is the one who will give the body, with the implication then, back in verses 42, 
sown perishable, God raises imperishable. Sown dishonourable, God raises in glory. Sown weak, God raises in power. How's God going to knit all the pieces together? How will God take dust and give us transformed bodies? I don't know. But I'm confident that God knows. God is able and God will. Because the future ahead of us is inherited. It's made possible through Jesus. Verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So hear the logic of what Paul is saying as he contrasts the two great family lines in history, so the two great family trees, between the first man, Adam, and the second man, or the last Adam, who is Jesus. That's the contrast. So from one side of the family tree, Paul says, well, we all share in the nature of the first Adam. We're frail, we're sinful, we're mortal. It doesn't take too much of an honest reflection to recognise that. In the line of Adam, the wages of sin is death. We're powerless to escape that on our own. And that as sin entered the world, the whole of creation was left reeling, moving from order to disorder. We're part of that. But with Jesus on the other side of the family tree, a whole new line has been opened. A whole new trajectory has been set, like a diverging railroad, that when we put our trust in Jesus, we become part of his family line forever. It means that we're still human, born in the image of earthly man, but we'll also be transformed in the image, the likeness of the heavenly man of Jesus. So we start with earthly bodies like Adam, but we finish with heavenly bodies like Jesus. Of course, we're made in the image of God, but tainted by sin, our family inheritance is lousy. But through Jesus, when you hit your life to him, we gain a whole new inheritance of eternal life. So our future is not dependent upon our earthly inheritance, but that which we inherit from the Lord Jesus himself. This week, I'm sure you've probably seen, it has made headlines just about everywhere that Jeff Bezos, so the founder of Amazon, one of the richest people in the world, depending upon the value of Amazon shares any given day, has put over $100 million, massive sums of money, into a Russian startup that is hoping by reprogramming genes that they can dramatically slow the ageing process or even stop it altogether. Now, it seems that they're trying to conquer death itself, and of course, you can imagine, it's attracted no shortage of commentary. Is this just some sort of uh, billionaire's pursuit to try and live forever? Is eternity, is eternal life within humanity's grasp? Now, of course, it's triggered plenty of discussion, asking, is this a good thing to pursue? What would the quality of life be like? Wouldn't our fragile earth be crushed under overpopulation? Wouldn't actually own the super rich be able to afford this? But here's the thing. 
even if humans could achieve this, it wouldn't be enough. There would still be sin, our world would still be broken, and life certainly not would be free. But through Jesus, what we inherit is not just a prolonged or a slightly improved life and world, but comprehensive transformation that has been offered to every single person for free. That's not a matter of if it will happen, but only a matter of when. When will it happen? Immediately when the Lord Jesus returns. So verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. The word mystery doesn't mean a puzzle to be solved or a secret. We don't know all the details. And when Paul says, we will not all sleep, he's saying that when the Lord Jesus returns, many will have died, some will be living, but all will be changed. Remember, some people were saying the end time had already come, and Paul addresses that also in the letter to Timothy, Timothy chapter 2, and he says that teaching that the end time has already come is such a treacherous falsehood that it will spread like gangrene. That's how serious Paul takes it. What they think is spiritual wisdom, Paul says is actually foolishness. No, as he addressed earlier, each in turn, first Jesus, then us later, and now Paul spells out the later, when Jesus returns. So it hasn't happened yet. Yes, we've received the Spirit. Yes, we can delight in relationship with Jesus right now. But when Jesus returns, you are not going to miss it. For it will unfold in a twinkling of an eye, and all in Christ will be changed, transformed forever. The word twinkling, I'm not sure how often you use the word twinkling, you know, in everyday sentences, but it's an amazing word here, because it means something so small, so, something so infinitesimal, the amount of time, that it cannot be divided. So it's not a process, it's not incremental, but immediately God will clothe us imperishable. The prophets spoke of the final trumpet sounding, the end of God's intervention. And of course, trumpets in ancient battle could signal all sorts of things, but this one signals that the battle has not only been won, but it is done. Jesus has been vindicated. It's the final death toll for death. As I often recall when my good friend John Bergen, when he and his late wife Ruth, when they purchased their grave plots and the person who was helping them said, this will be such a beautiful final resting place. John quipped back immediately to her with every confidence, uh-uh, lady, when that trumpet sounds, we're up and out of here. <laughs> I wonder if you want to share in that confidence too. On our own, it's just not possible. We can't defeat death. We can't face judgment and stand. But those who are raised in Christ, he will take what is his and give it to you. 54, verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. 
Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul taunting, he's thumbing his nose at death. Death still lurks, how we know that. We see that all the time. We feel the effects of it right now. This week, of course, marks 20 years since September 11. But death is pervasive, it's in every place and day. But it's not the physical pain of death in the immediate that Paul's talking about here. He's saying that because death's power comes from sin, convicting us through the law, the wages of sin is death, that because Jesus has comprehensively paid the price, that those who put their trust in Jesus, death now has no hold on them. We do not know when the trumpet will sound. We cannot win the victory on our own. It has to be won for us, and won for us it has. Do you want to share in that victory? Well, it's clear. Verse 58. Therefore, that is because of this glorious news, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. So with the pain of this world, with the the weakening of our bodies, we can carry around all sorts of physical, emotional, psychological scars. There are, there are many days in which we can feel pretty wobbly. And so Paul's encouragement to us, he sets a twofold agenda for our lives is so simple. In one column, stand firm. Let nothing move you from the truth of the gospel. So I want you to imagine that column for your life. Column A. What should go in it? What things should move us from the gospel? Nothing. That means if there's something that moves us from standing firm in the gospel, we need to address it. And the second column, the twofold agenda for our lives, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. So what should go in that? How do we give ourselves? Is there anything left out? Always and fully. It means our whole lives are in. Every front line of our life, every relationship that we have, all the time that we spend, every gift that we have, Paul says, orientated to the Lord, give it to the Lord. If you ever feel like you labour in vain, if you ever feel like you can't see the point, I'd love you to hear this encouragement. It's not in vain. Your efforts are not futile. You might feel like your gift is small, but God is the one bringing things to completion. See, our future hope doesn't give us cause to want to escape but it should fuel us to stand firm 
can serve today. For not only do we know how this chapter ends, but we also know how the next chapter begins. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the glorious good news of the gospel. How we thank you that we can revel in relationship with you, that we don't have to earn that, but you have made it entirely possible through your son, through his death and resurrection. So Lord, we just thank you so much for that. Lord, we pray with such a clear vision of the gospel, with such a clear hope of the resurrection that awaits, that you might be at work in the power of your spirit, helping us to stand firm on your word, that our hope would be fixed on that which is yet to come and not the fleeting aspects of the world around us, and that you would enable us to serve you always and fully. Lord, please help us to orientate every single aspect of our lives to you in service of you, confident that it is not in vain because you are bringing things to completion. Lord, how we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.